We are in a series called Kingdom Hospitality, and uh, our, what we're trying to be about as a church is gathering to go with the presence of Jesus. Gathering to go with the presence of Jesus. And so last fall, we talked about presence, God's presence, and we did a 10-week prayer initiative, and we focused on we want the living God's presence with us as he offers himself to be with us. So gathering to go with the presence of Jesus, and then in January and February, we, we talked about gathering, about how those who say yes to Jesus are called into a community, not just to be solo spiritual people, but to be in a community, Jesus' family. And so there are ways that the Bible calls us to be devoted to one another. And uh, starting in a couple weeks, we are going to be, a few weeks, we are going to be talking about let's go. Let's go. We're going to be looking at Paul and some of his companions and how they went and what they did as they went. So gathering to go with the presence of Jesus. Now in this series, Kingdom Hospitality, we are, there's kind of a combination of gathering and going. When we talk about kingdom hospitality, hospitality obviously has a sense of welcome, of kind of a home base, and you can come in, and we, we want you to feel at home. We want you to feel part of us. That's part of hospitality. That's a, that's a gathering thing. Hopefully as we gather, we do it in Jesus' name to, to have a sense of his presence there. So there is that gathering side. But in kingdom hospitality, it's also about we go to gather. We go to people. We go to the outsiders. Jesus was constantly saying, people that you often don't include, those are the people I'm wanting to invite in. And last week we talked about, as servants of the king, part of what we get to do is go say, you are invited to life with God. We get to go to to the story that Jesus told, uh, would say, you get to go to lost, to lonely, to broken, to outsiders, to those, and you get to say, you're invited. God wants you. You go to the highways and the byways. You go wherever you go. You could say, you can be invited in. We want to gather you to be part of God's people. The the king said, compel them, or the, the person hosting the banquet said, compel them to come in. It doesn't mean force them to come in, but just tell them, this: you are so wanted by the one who's throwing this party. You are so desired. God really wants life with you. Do what you can to convince them they come in and have the kind of life that God invites you to have, that, that is life with God. You are all invited, and you can be the ones who invited. We, we gather to go with that message, and we go to gather, because Jesus says, whoever doesn't gather with me scatters. We don't drift into life with God. It's not something that just casually happens. We have to be intentional about it, and we can't do it by ourselves. We join together to grow in this way, and we go together to invite people in. That is part of what kingdom hospitality is about. So we are learning from the Lord of hosts about giving and receiving hospitality. And we're going to look at another example from Jesus' life where we learn and he teaches us about kingdom hospitality. So from Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What what is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? The man answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. 
But the man wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, putting on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now, this is an incredible story. Jesus is the master teacher. And uh, one of the ways that there's, so there's a lot that we can just get from the story through the power of the Holy Spirit, just by seeking after him and reading him, reading it. But some of the main points that I think Jesus was trying to make really come to the surface when we look at how this story has come to us. The story that Jesus tells is framed by this series of questions and answers between an expert in the law and Jesus. So the expert in the law stands to test him, it says. Now, it could be that he is, when you stand, it's actually, that is a position of humility before the sitting teacher in their culture. So it could be that he's pretending like, oh, I really respect you, teacher, when really he's got ulterior motives. Or, or it could be he's an expert in the law. Like, Jesus has created a following, it's controversial, people don't know, and so he's, he is testing them to say, does this measure up to what we have in God's word? Might not be a, like a negative testing. Don't know. Either way, he stands and he asks a question. And Jesus' response is brilliant, and there's kind of a pattern to it. So, we'll, we'll, if you can bring that to the screen, Adam, I don't know if I can't see... So there's the expert in the law asked a first question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds, well, first I should say, this is an interesting question. I don't think of uh, doing something to get my inheritance. I mean, sometimes there's, I guess, some aspects of that, some qualifications, but usually inheritance is like a gift. It's unearned. It's given to you. What must I do to inherit eternal life. Jesus' response isn't to say, though, you don't have to do anything. It's a gift. Now, eternal life is a gift, and I'll get to that, but he doesn't stop there. He just says, I got a question for you. My question for you is, what is written in the law? How do you read it? You're the expert. If we want to know what we do to inherit eternal life, it's in God's word. And Jesus is right away, this guy who is being questioned, does he really believe in the law? Does he really believe in God's word? Is he really upholding that? He says, well, let's just go right here. So you're the one with, who's the expert, so how do you read it? 
The man replies, love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, or strength and all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. He's quoting Deuteronomy. He's quoting Leviticus from the Old Testament, the, the, the core teachings of the law that summarize all the other teachings. Now Jesus answers, or now, so now the man has answered Jesus' question, question two. So now Jesus answers his first question. That's right. So do this. Do it. Actually love God with everything you have. And love others. Treat them as you would want to be treated. Do this, and you will have entered into the kind of life that comes from God. Because love is the most powerful force in the world. God's love is the most powerful force in the world. And so when we tap into it by giving ourselves fully to God, and by allowing him to love others through us, now we have his life moving through us. We have entered into it. But the man now, I don't know what it means that he wanted to justify himself. Was it because he knows he falls short and doesn't actually do the loving of God with everything he has and loving other people? Or is it because he wanted to make Jesus look bad or make himself look smart and that question didn't seem to do that? It just made Jesus look good and him maybe not as good? Whatever the reason, he comes back with another question and now his motives are self-serving. Now his motives are self-serving. He wants to justify himself. Again, question, question, answer, answer. The lawyer says, and who is my neighbor? To which Jesus tells a story, which we'll get into in a moment, but ends after the story by asking a question in response to the man's question. Which of these three was a neighbor to the man? The one who had mercy on him. He answers Jesus' question. Now Jesus is ready to answer his question, which is go and do likewise. Do it. So the man gets to a point where he is saying, like, how do we know who our neighbor is and what we're obligated to and, and if they fit and qualify? And it's all about when we talk about neighbor, what's out there? What about them? How do I get figure this out? What's right? And neighbor is a noun. And Jesus' response is, no, actually how you should look at it is not what do they have to do to qualify as your neighbor, but how can you become a neighbor? How can you neighbor someone? It's like it becomes a verb. And that is part of kingdom hospitality. We can become neighbors to other people. We can do things that is what we would want a neighbor to do. So before we get into Jesus' story where he's explaining this neighbor, just taking it from everyday life, from our time now, I'll start the phrase and you end it. And like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Right? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I mean, it took people, like, there's people ready. They had no idea it was coming, it was ready. And I bet you some that didn't say it, like it was in their head. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm has done a good job. Right? State Farm has found a jingle that we can just pull up at any moment because they want us to remember it. Of all the messages we're getting, of all the things we're getting, how are we going to remember their company? And so we can remember it because they've used a device, a jingle, to help us remember it. Now, in the midst of that jingle, something that I usually don't think about, but, hope, but I, I guess it might be their hope is working at a subconscious level, 
is that I would want an insurance company that's there when I need them. Like a good neighbor or friend would be there. So, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They use this device. It's effective. Now, in Jesus' time, there weren't commercial jingles. They didn't just take the video and put it on YouTube. He didn't text it. He didn't have it written out. There wasn't a, a person like taking down what he said. There, so how are people going to remember the most important points about what someone says? How do you help people remember them when you're trying to be a communicator in that day? Well, one of the devices used in the Jewish world, in our Old Testament Bibles, sometimes hard to see because it was in Hebrew and not in English. And so the things get in different orders, but is they use patterns. There are patterns, and sometimes it's like an inverted pattern. There is point one, point two, point three, point four, point, point five, point six, point seven, and what happens is point one and point seven match, point two and point six match, point three and point five match, and then point four, however many numbers, but the middle point is the main point. And it helps you by seeing what connects and by seeing what the main point is get the message at a subconscious level. It also helps you remember the story. So here is the story. We're, we're going to go through this and watch it happen. Luke chapter 10, verse 30, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jer Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of, of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So scene one is basically he, robbers come and they steal and they injure a man. Injure and steal, steal and injure. That's scene one. Going on, the next verse. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So scene two is priest, and a priest sees. It's not just like, well, he didn't see. He, he sees, but he walks the other way. He does not go and respond. He sees, and he moves away. He does nothing to help the man. A priest would, would most likely be a wealthy person. He'd, be coming, he'd probably be riding on some sort of animal. So he would see, but he would just move on. Going on, the next verse. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw a man, and saw the man, passed by on the other side. So now the Levite sees the man who needs help passes by the other side, but he does nothing to help. So the priest sees, does nothing to help. The Levite sees, does nothing to help. Now, if I was telling a joke about a priest, a pastor, and a rabbi, or something, you know, I'd get the priest, pastor, people be ready for the rabbi, or maybe what would be better in my Minnesota roots would be, if I was telling a, one of the Norwegian jokes, it would be either about Sven and Oli, or who's Sven and, what's the guy, just blanked. Nobody knows those? Oh, Sven and Oli or Sven and Lena. Right. So, so what, the, what everyone is ready for in this story, the priest saw, went. The Levite saw, went. The next ca ca um, character is going to be the temple assistant, who's not a priest or not a Levite, because they're not in that family line, but they also help. That's who's going to be coming next. It's going to be the priest, the Levite, and the temple assistant. Priest, Levite, temple assistant. Priest, Levite. But we go and, and Jesus says, but a Samaritan. Whoa. 
Nobody ready for that. You've got the, the story just took a turn back then. Because a Samaritan would be like, almost like Islamic terrorist to them. Because they did, some Samaritans did do terrorist things. But there's a mutual hatred, there was racism, there, all that. So a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So now, I'll give you the rest of the pattern. If you, if you can bring up the rest of the pattern. In the middle is the Samaritan, who instead, when he sees him, instead of going on and passing by, he went to him. He didn't just took pity like, I feel bad. He took pity and went to him. He showed compassion. And then he heals his wounds. Now, a Levite would likely have oil and wine as part of his duties at the temple. That'd be part of his supplies. So maybe there's an implication that the first thing he does is what the Levite could have done, but didn't do. The priest, probably wealthy, probably had an animal. What the Samaritan does is what the priest could have done, but didn't do. The priest did nothing. So you've got a Samaritan who does something to help the man. Those are the two main points Jesus is taught. Telling One is, there is one person who takes pity and actually does something. Compared to people who should be the most holy people, the most close to God people, who do nothing. And the person is a Samaritan. Now, if you're going back to the question, who is my neighbor? The one thing the expert in the law never saw coming was a Samaritan. Nobody's going to say Samaritan. To the Jew. A Jewish man is not going to tell another Jewish man, Samaritan is your neighbor. And in fact, I think if he had said, Samaritan, who's my neighbor? Well, it's everyone. It's including Samaritans. The person, oh, everybody. But Jesus is too, too smart to say it like that. He twists it. He makes the Samaritan the neighbor. And there's no arguing with that. That it's not about the skin color. It's not about what nationality, what their exact belief system is. It's about who showed love. That's who the neighbor is. Who showed love. Now, when we get to the end of this story, the question I have is what was the expert in the law's response? It just ends, go and do likewise. Was he offended? Was he convicted? Did his life change? What? It just goes on to the next story in the Bible. It doesn't say what he did, and I think that's intentional. Because the value of the stories, whether they're the stories Jesus tells or whether the stories about Jesus, the way they come to us in the Bible is that often there is no what did they do because it's left to say, what will you do? What will I do? 
will I become a neighbor? Or the other kingdom hospitality principle, will I do something? Not just know that I'm a good person in my heart and have good intentions for someone else, but will I do something? So here's a couple reflection questions. When is the last time you have done something for a neighbor? When is the last time? Did you do something? Can you think of something this week that you have done for someone close to you that needed something and it was inconvenient? But you did it. Next question. When is the last time you have become a neighbor to someone who isn't in your natural group? Maybe you aren't particularly comfortable with them. Maybe you even have reason to be, like, not nice to them. When is the last time you have done something to become a neighbor? Now, our world is filled with needs. Lots of people, every day, lots of things. We can't do everything. We can't meet every need that's around us. Then we get to be like, you know, we're Nick, we're holding all the stuff, and we can't even do it. But we can do something. We can do for one person what we, what we wish we could do for everyone. We can actually do something. And it should include doing good things for the people that we're closest to, that we live with, that we're around the most. We don't skip them. But it shouldn't just be to people that are just close to us, that are just easy to love. That are just... Kingdom hospitality does both. Why don't we do it? Well, I think one of the things is, in my opinion, it's not just my opinion, this is pretty standard in terms of what studies have shown, is that our amount of screen time, the amount of time we spend on screens, and I'm not thinking about work, I mean, we have lots of our work, us working, like a, we have to spend a lot of time in front of a screen. I'm talking about like recreational screen time. Social media, on the phone, watching TV, you know, large amounts of that make us more passive make us have less confidence about interacting with people personally. Which is why it's pretty clear, I, don't, I haven't seen any op opposite studies of this, anxiety, shh, depression, shh, it's all showing it's going up, and the correlation, more and more, the, the correlation to the amount of screen time, amount of time on social media, those kinds of things, it's there. So the screen time, which can easily be the idols of our day. We don't bow down to statues like they did in the Bible times. We just look at images. And it makes us passive, and we're, we're more likely to be people who when something happens, even when we see it, we just go by the other way instead. Because it's just, I don't know. And so who has life? Like who is full of life? It's people who love God, who actually make time for God and love other people. 
That is life. The source is God. It's his love. But it's actually doing something with that. Saying, help me. I want to do this with you. That is life. Now, some of us are doing lots of things for lots of people. That's true, and, and we need to kind of prioritize and figure out. Like I said, we can't do everything for everyone, but sometimes we have so many activities that then if someone's there, sorry. But these activities aren't necessarily the activities that lead us to the most loving of other people or loving of God. They could be good activities, but if there's just too many of them. And I think when there's too many activities, then we're even more drawn to this. I'm so stressed that I just want to do this. And we don't live. We're not alive. But loving God, loving people, doing the things that help us to love God and love people, he comes with his life, the life that he offers us. It's available to us. I got an email earlier this month. Let me read it. Good morning, Andrew. I'm not much for telling, for storytelling. Regardless, I figured this would, was a good one to share with you. Feel free to use this story as you can to benefit the church any way possible. Our family gives thousands of dollars away each year to young families that are struggling, to families who have soldiers overseas, and through scholarships to students located in six states. It's always been our goal to share our financial success with others. However, we have always been below average church givers. I'll shoulder the blame for this as I'm the one who takes the lead in finances in our house. I still feel good about our approach to giving in this life. With that said, our overall experience now that we are back at Celebrate has truly been great. I'm thankful for the impact on our family and we are starting to give to the church now. This is where my story begins. Two weeks ago, my wife and I tithed to Celebrate for the first time in over a year, over a year to any church as a whole. It was on my heart to shift some of our giving back to your organization. Within days, the good Lord paid it right back to us. Where we live currently, there's an older gentleman that owns much of the land and home lots surrounding the area. All of the local neighbors are quick to talk negative about him, and honestly, most talk very badly about him behind his back. Over the last five years, I have made it a priority to help him in all the ways I can, from selling his real estate, managing uh, his managing his development, to inviting him over into our home to spend time together with our family. But I'll be honest, in the last month, my willingness to help has changed. I have worn thin with the give, give, give approach with little to no return on the investment. Well, little did I know the good Lord was working right underneath my nose. I woke up last weekend and told my wife that I was starting to get frustrated with the amount of time I was spending on my relationship with this individual. During that very conversation with my wife, and within days of starting to tithe at Celebrate, I received a phone call from the individual. He said, I would like you to check your mailbox today. Inside, you'll find a deed to a house lot located near your home. I'm giving you this lot for free, as my wife and I are truly grateful for the way you have trusted us, treated us, and made our dream come true as it relates to the development and sale of our real estate in the last five years. Furthermore, there is a phone number on a sticky note located in your mailbox. It's contact information of a buyer who's willing to pay $26,000 to purchase the lot and would like to close the sale in in the next 45 days. Again, this is our blessing back to your family for all that you have done for us. Now back to the person who sent me the email. There was zero doubt in my mind that the good Lord was multiplying all the good things in this life 
to bless our family. What does that teach us about neighboring? What does that teach us about kingdom hospitality? So, we don't tithe because God needs our money. He's doing pretty good. He's doing good. He can can come up with resources anytime he wants. And we don't tithe to like, then he'll like us more. We tithe because everything we have is from him. So it helps us remind us of that. And the practice of tithing, of giving 10% of of your income to the work of the Lord, is a way to help you trust God with your money. To know that you can trust God more than money. And so, here's someone who does it. I have heard countless stories like this over the years. I have experienced some of these things myself when we give above and beyond, um, where it's like almost an immediate God does something. Now, we don't give to get that. That's not the goal. But in the Bible, Jesus quoted Deuteronomy to say, do not put the Lord your God to a test. But in Malachi, in the Old Testament, it says, you can test me in this with your tithes and your offerings and see if I will not open up the heavens and, and the floodgates of blessing will pour on you. You can trust me with your money. You can test me with your money. So that's one aspect. Now, was it the tithing that got him the 26 grand, or was it being nice to the neighbor? That's what I want to know, because I'm going to do whichever one gets me the money, right? Well, no, 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 that's... He neighbored, though. He neighbored. He became a neighbor to his neighbor. And it's... There are, from the feeding of the 5,000 a few weeks ago, kingdom hospitality, one thing we know is that we, we should give thanks for what we have to offer. Instead of comparing ourselves to other people, instead of complaining about what we don't have, what we have, we should give thanks for what we have to offer. And then when we actually offer it to bless other people, to give back to God, when we actually offer it, we should ask God to to bless it because he will multiply it. That was from the feeding of the 5,000. I would say one more thing, which is a kingdom hospitality principle, is that when we offer things, we can trust God will give us what we need. When we offer things, to love him or to bless other people, he, we can trust him. He will provide what we need. It might not look like 26 grand. That might not be. But he, we can trust he will give us what we need. It's enough. And having that trust helps us to be a good neighbor to people. That we can trust someone is taking care of us means I can, even though I might be busy, even though I have a lot to even, I can go back and help someone else because I got someone who's helping me. Because in this story, Jesus is the real good Samaritan. Jesus is the one who comes to us. You know, if a Samaritan puts a half-dead Jew on his horse and goes into Jewish land, he is risking his life. Because the Jewish people aren't going to go, oh, he must be helping that Samaritan must be helping that Jew. What a nice Samaritan. No, that's not what they're going to think. He did it anyway. Jesus didn't just risk his life. He gave his life. And he who gave his son, will he not also generously give us all things in Romans 8? He will. We can trust him. And we get to know the life of God, eternal life, 
a life permeated with God, we get to know that when we do it, when we trust him and we put it into practice, this email, that's the life of God. How do you want to know the life of God? How do you want to know God could provide when you really need it? How do you want to know that God's for you? How do you want to know that God sees you? You do the things of loving him, putting him first. I'm going to give. We're going to tithe. You do the things of loving other people. We're going to be this neighbor even though it feels like give, give, give. Do you think God's up there going, all I do with these people is give, give, give. When am I going to get something out of them? No. It's just his nature to give, give, give. One of the things that's really stuck with me most in the last six or nine months, when Camille was and I taught together in September, she talked about a defining mark of love is the willingness to be inconvenienced. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength might mean sometimes it's inconvenient. What you could be doing, you're going to set aside to do things that will help you here. And loving your neighbor as yourself might be inconvenient. This has been a full week in our life. There were a couple times where I thought, I'm going to get a moment here outside. It's so nice out. Just in the evening, just outside, sitting down, just want like 20, 30 minutes. So Friday night, I'm running things over. I'm carrying mulch. I'm doing the stuff. I'm giving kids rides. And I have just got my, my eye is on the prize. About 6.30, 7 o'clock, I'm going to eat supper. I'm going to sit outside. Hopefully Camille will be able to join me. If she can't, don't care. I'm gonna, I care, but I'm going to eat supper. Like I am, I want her to join me, but I mean, what I'm real, I'm like, can we just sit and eat in this, it's beautiful out, and, but not be doing something. So I get home from the last errand, and I know the, the food, I can smell the food when I walk in. This is what we're going to do. And I get a call, or Camille's on the phone, and then she says, you know, one of our sons cut himself. He's in a tumble. He needs stitches. The other boys don't want to love their neighbor. They still want to play games with their Uncle Mark. So we have to go. Didn't mean to say that while you're here in the room, but he, we, we need to go meet up halfway so we can get him to the hospital so he can get get glued up. Now, that was inconvenient with what I had in mind for the night. But do you think there was any part of me that didn't say, I will go get my son. I will go get my son, who I love my son. And if he's bleeding, I will drive him to California if that's where he needs to go. Because I love my son. That is how God feels about us. Not inconvenienced. He made you. He loves you. And he says, I have life for you. Life like my life. So if you will come to me, I will give you that kind of life and love. And that is the source of how we're able to love other people. We love because he first loved us. So what can we do? Because Jesus says, do this. Well, we can practice hospitality. We can practice serving. So in a couple weeks, I hope we get 20, 30, 40 people who will go be neighbors to meet needs in our community. You can sign up for that. 
you could invite people who don't even go to church to join you for that. There's a bunch of people who would be like, I don't want to go to listen to that guy talk and the music and sit there and no thank you. But I'll go help people. And that might be their first step towards life with God. And then the other one, the practice hospitality, like I said, we're not very good at talking to each other. We're not even good at talking to each other that are like us. What about people who are different than us, who think different, that have different views, have different economics, but we want to be neighbors to them. So we practice by talking with people we don't know very well here about real things. And, I mean, maybe the people who haven't liked it just haven't said anything to me, but many people have said after the first two, this, I'm paraphrasing or summarizing what I feel like they've described. This just gives me life. This is life-giving to have a meal and talk with people about real things. Have the worship team come up. Let's pray. Thank you that you love us, God. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that we can trust you. Thank you. Thank you that we can become more and more like you as we follow Jesus. Would you help us become more and more like you? Would you love your world through us? Would you help us even just this week do for one what you want to do for everyone? It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen.